0: Welcome to Three Thoughts On. This is Rafael, and today we have a second installment of the series Think Classically and Argue Better with my friend John Malahi. Last week, we spoke about the background and purpose of argumentation, and today we follow that with means of persuasion. But before we get started, I have to make a small correction on something I said on the last episode. John made a reference to a very famous case from 1770, where John Adams represented a group of British soldiers that had fired into a crowd of colonists and killed five colonists. That event, of course, is known in history as the Boston Massacre. And the point of John's comment was that that was a very difficult decision for John Adams to take that required a lot of character to give proper representation to people, even if they were unpopular. I very quickly made reference to a completely different case that happened in 1839, many years later, where his son, John Quincy Adams, represented a group of Africans that had been captured and sold illegally as enslaved workers in Cuba in what is called the case of Amistad. So that was an honest mistake, and I stand corrected, as those two cases took place almost 70 years apart from each other. And now, without further ado, means of persuasion. Welcome to Three Thoughts On. We are back here with my friend John. Happy Memorial Day, John. How are you doing today? Doing well, Raphael.
1: Happy Memorial Day. It's a solemn day, but uh, it's excellent to see you again. And I'm so happy we have the opportunity to speak more to the audience about uh,
0: argumentation. Yes, last time we had a great talk about how to think classically, argue better, specifically about the background and purpose of argumentation. And we had some great feedback. So we hope that we can do just as good today. And we are going to tackle the the means of persuasion. So tell me about the means of persuasion from a classical argumentation point of view. So if you
1: remember Aristotle, he has three ways of constructing an argument. The first way is ethos. The second way is pathos or pathos. And the third way is logos. And in short, ethos is credibility who is the speaker, and why should we listen to the speaker. Pathos or pathos is the experience that's being brought in and the emotion that you're triggering. And logos is the word. Logos is the foundation, uh, the factual predicate, if you will, for supporting the argument. And we'll go through all three and uh, have the audience uh, understand how they all work together in unison.
0: Excellent. So let's start with ethos. So from what you just said, then ethos is basically that that the speaker brings to the table from a point of view of credibility and character. Is that the case?
1: Yes. Ethos is the Greek word for ethos is character. And what that means is credibility. What does the speaker know? And how well does the speaker know it? Uh, Aristotle would call it persuasion through character. And really, it's the speaker's reputation being on the line at an issue. And it's the audience recognizing that this speaker needs to give some justification for what he or she's about to tell us.
0: So that's interesting. So if we bring this back to today, right, we, we could probably just from an ethos point of view, We could probably, and at the highest level, if I may, we could probably segment uh, speakers into two sides. Those who have character and and have credibility because of the work they've done, say publications that they've uh, submitted and published, books, the work that they do on a day-to-day basis. And maybe on the other side is those who maybe at some point did some amount of work but maybe don't do so much of that work anymore. And it is up to us in the audience to then discern if the speaker, because of their background, is providing information that is acceptable or if that information still needs to be questioned as a result of the fact that they may not be as current as they once were. Am I I, uh, approaching this from from a healthy way? Absolutely. The speaker has
1: to give some justification for his or her uh, discussion of the topic. There has to be a trust factor here, and uh, we can go into some examples if you want, but there has to be something that is spurring the audience to say, I understand what this person's trying to say because I could relate to that person in some way. And uh, I can give you an example of Steve Jobs to go forward with this. Yes, please go ahead. Steve Jobs had given a speech years ago, um, and he was discussing what it's like to live before dying. And what does that mean is live your best life before dying. And what did he do? He discussed how he grew up in humble circumstances. Uh, We remember Steve Jobs being the very rich man walking around the stage with his tablet in his black shirt, in his jeans, looking very comfortable at that point towards the end of his life, what he was discussing was how he got there. And that's part of a justification is, listen to me because I've gone through something that you're going through, some pains that you've gone through socially, some other pains that you've gone through, maybe religiously at this point. And what did he do in that speech? He discussed how he grew up. He discussed the path he took, the jobs he had before Apple, the jobs that he lost. He lost his job at Apple. They fired him. And he discussed learning from those experiences. And I think, Raphael, that speaks to people out there who lose their jobs, who come from humble backgrounds that, but want to be successful, want their children to be more successful than they are, which is a natural parental inclination at this point. And he did that. He discussed his humble backgrounds. He discussed how he came to figure out the design for Apple. He was a calligrapher at certain points, and that's how he dabbled into designs for Apple. And the meaning of his speech was, and a clip of it, Raphael, is your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. I think that's very important. It's very important not just for Steve because we wouldn't have all these advances, Apple, Microsoft. We wouldn't be using the phones that he was very instrumental in working on. But we have to think that we have to live our own lives. We're not going to live a life like Steve Jobs, even though we could relate to him, because there are going to be very big differences in our life. But if we can take something from that speech, some strength from that, some positive uh, thing to say that this person, I could relate to this person. Uh, I'm a juror. I could relate to this witness. Uh, I'm a student. I I could relate to this teacher who's teaching me something or the subject matter. I could relate to this historical figure in some way. That's what you want to do uh, as a speaker. You want the audience to relate to you, most times like you, but be able to see something that you've done, some background that they see. Uh, We call it the uh, locus standi, the right to be speaking about a subject and the audience being willing to give you the benefit of the doubt because you've been in the trenches.
0: Okay. So now that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and once again, I think it's important for, for all of us to be aware of the fact that even if the person has the credibility, um, it is still on us, the listener to continue to validate that credibility. I think it wouldn't be very hard in today's uh ecosystem to find people who embellish their background to be able to relate to the audience right or embellish their accomplishment embellish you know their 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 humbling beginnings. I'm not saying by any means that was the case with steve but i you know it, it's not that difficult to find these examples so uh we want to be able to on one hand provide the benefit of the doubt for the speaker, make sure that the speaker is credible. In this case, Steve was being, was trying to connect with where he started, but somebody may try to connect because of their intellectual accomplishments, right? Uh, Somebody may try to connect with you because of their military accomplishments or their business acumen and so forth. You know, there's there's character and credibility that comes from many different ways. And we want to be able to give the benefit of the doubt. We want to be able to, uh to, to not be actively wanting to disconnect, but we also need to do our part in making sure that that connection is indeed there, right so that then we can have that engagement with uh, with the speaker in a passive way.
1: That's absolutely right. Uh, I'll give you another example. Um, George Washington in and around March of seventeen eighty three faced a big dilemma. Most of the war was done at that point. We already had the surrender at Yorktown two years before, but maybe some of the audience doesn't realize the war continued because Britain was still there and they had to work out the peace. Working out the peace and keeping the army together while you worked, that was very important because you didn't want to let down your guard and actually reopen the hostilities at this point. We were in bad shape and we didn't want to let Britain know how bad we were economically and militarily at that point. And George Washington had to face something huge in and around March of 1783. He had his officers that were threatening to mutiny. And, you know, when we look at it, Raphael, we can understand why these are officers who have been serving, uh, sweating, bleeding, losing limbs for the country when some of the country wasn't making the similar sacrifices. They weren't paid, they were losing their farms, they were leaving their family members. And uh, they felt enough was enough at this point. So we could, in a sense, relate to the officers that were there. But then let's see what George Washington did. He didn't go around, line up the mutineers, and hang them or shoot them. He could have done that. Back in those days, he really could have done something like that. But what he did was he spoke to them. He basically told them, uh, as I said before, being in the trenches, I was in the trenches with you. I was the first to be part of this cause. And if we look at some of what he said... He said, I've been faithfully a friend to the army. Yes, he has. He was the person who showed up at those early conventions in his military garb. He was the person that took it upon himself to lead this nation, not knowing where it would go, not having an arm, showing up and having poor farmers uh, put together an army and he had to take on the most powerful army in the world at that point. Something else, I was among the first to embarked in the cause of our common country. He's speaking to them as countrymen, and he diffused the situation by speaking to them not as their commander, but as their fellow soldier at this point. Uh, And there were other aspects of the speech when he talked about growing gray and growing blind. He did that. He did that for the country, and this is why he's remembered. He's remembered because he had a way of justifying himself, not in a condescending way. He's not speaking down to them. He's speaking to them. Someone else who did that was FDR when we were attacked on Pearl Harbor. Huge event. You know, the day that will live in infamy. And he's absolutely right about that. So what a military leader could have done was to not say anything, line up the military, go after them, and uh, not care how the people were behaving, but take it upon himself to be this uh, military czar. He didn't do that. FDR, to his credit, and you might disagree with his politics uh, and maybe have good reason to do so, but to his credit, he spoke to the people very well. He had those fireside chats during the war. And what did he do here? He gave the people some confidence. As commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, I've directed all measures to be taken for our defense. He's given them confidence. He's giving them – he's not speaking only as a president – He's justifying himself to speak to them that way because he is the commander in chief, but he's given them assurances. He's actually being a friend to them. He's being someone to give them the confidence to say, look, we got through the loss of jobs 10 years ago, five, six, seven years ago. Now we're going to get through this conflict. And that's what you look for
0: as an audience member in a leader. That's great. So that's that sums up basically in a good way. Three examples about ethos bringing bring into the table character and credibility to persuade the audience you're speaking with how about should we go to logos now sure we'll go to logos
1: and logos so the audience knows know the greek words all of these are greek words um aristotle was greek and a lot of our foundation is uh in our english language is derived from greek words so logos is the greek word for word we might remember logos from uh the gospel of saint john there's a logos when the word became flesh that's how some people remember the word logos and that's generally what it is it's the word what words are you using to persuade you know what connection are you making to support your argument if we think of the tripartite uh argumentation that aristotle had set up Ethos, pathos, and logos, it's a triangle. You can turn it on its side, and each side is going to be equal because, in the end, they all have to equally work together, even though sometimes during the speech you might rely on one part of it as opposed to the other. I think of the logos really as the cement to the argument, it's really cementing why you're trying to justify an argument to the audience and why the audience should believe you. This is more getting past giving credibility to the speaker to speak to the subject. This is being able to be convinced that this speaker is right and why. It's the factual predicates we talked about. It's the stats, the figures, the good stuff, the analytics that we wish more of our media would ask individuals about as opposed to relying on things beyond that, opinions. Uh, In what I do, uh, if I'm ever asking an expert ideas uh, or justification for their opinion, I want to get beyond the opinion uh, because an opinion could be net or naked in the sense that I believe that you deviated. Uh, I say within a reasonable degree of medical probability that you deviated from the standard of care here, but why? What are you relying on? What records are you relying on? What testimony are you relying on? That's the meat of it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about logos. It's the appeal to logic, and you have to overcome, which we'll talk about later, logical fallacies, because some speakers that shouldn't be given the benefit of the doubt will try to trick you in ways to say, believe my conclusion, but look away from
0: the support for my conclusion. So very interesting. I think another, another element of today's ecosystem is probably this is... This is at the pinnacle of where we've deviated from. I think more and more you see speakers, whether they're on TV or on a college campus or, you know, the town hall. And again, it's difficult to deviate from politics here because it permeates everything. But it seems more and more, whether you're in a town hall or you're in Twitter or you're in, you know, any kind of social media platform, that people... Not only do not provide adequate fact, statistics, data, and evidence, but when you challenge that fact, they either get offended or they turn around and and, and go in a different route. And what the Greeks are telling us here, if, if I'm understanding you correctly, is is that you know one you know once you're in the domain of logos, your job is to persuade the audience. Specifically and strategically and surgically with evidence that has backing, that has support, and that can be easily presented and consumed by the audience. Am I reading this right?
1: That's absolutely right. And it gives the audience the opportunity and hopefully the time to digest the evidence, too. So as an audience member, you're looking for support for the argument. That's the evidence you spoke about. But now that you've presented the evidence, it gives the audience an opportunity to evaluate the nature and extent of the evidence. We talked about polling statistics. Uh, They're good things. If you see them on a chart, it gives you some confidence that at least I can analytically, as Aristotle would say, look at something and say, "Okay, there seems to be some support, some justification for this based on rationale. But then you have to look closely at the numbers. What are they saying for polling? for example. Polls are only as good as the question is clear to a certain audience, and it's only as good as the audience being polled. What's the question being asked of the audience, and what's the answer being given? It's very easy, unfortunately, to misrepresent polling numbers based on a question being misinterpreted and misanswered in the process, and that's what we have to be very careful about. Being an audience member listening to this And if you're in a debate, being the opponent listening to that and being able to stop that person or respond to that and say your stat presumes A, but A is not what's going on here. It's B, isn't it? And then have your own refutation, your own set of facts to say, isn't this what we're talking about? When I depose experts, getting back to that example again, I'll remove hypothetically certain factual scenarios to see if the expert still agrees with me. I think we should see that more when we're challenging speakers. If you remove hypothetically a certain fact with something, does that speaker, politician, for example, still believe in that? And and I think that's important, too, not only to be the audience responding, be the opponent, because, as you know, Rafael, many times we're going to be in a couple of different Roles at the same time. We might be an opponent, but we might be the audience at the same time. You might be the speaker and you might be the audience member at the same time. You and I talked about this before we got on uh, the air here that many times if you're a speaker and you're challenged by someone in the audience, uh, don't parry that. Don't respond emotionally. Don't respond just pathically. Respond to it in a way where you challenge them, and then you become the audience member. You become the one challenging them. You know how is it that you came to that? Not only go through the ethos standpoint and have them express what their experience is, but also have them say the facts. I know you believe that, and I appreciate that. So you give them some type of foundation. However, what are you relying on for that? Something as simple as that could stop someone in their tracks because. Sometimes speakers, sometimes audience members, opponents are not used to being challenged on the factual support. And what frustrates me sometimes, Raphael, is that we have things like Twitter where you have a limited number of characters. That's not enough space for you yeah. to provide sometimes the support for what you're trying to say to someone.
0: That's interesting. And and I think you sent me something uh, over the weekend, an, an interview with Malcolm Gladwell, I, I think, you know, brings brings to light something that's very important here. And I think the the audience uh, could appreciate. So we, we talked about ethos. Right. So now we have we have a, we have a speaker. We have someone, you know, um, who who has credibility because of the work that they've done. Right. And then they come in with you and they they bring with them that credibility. They bring with them now the logos, they bring evidence, they bring data, they bring statistics, they bring facts, right? And then they make an argument with you, right? And then you fast forward five, 10 years, right? And now this individual, now times have changed, right? And people seem to be allergic to change, right? People seem to be allergic to the fact that, you know, data and statistics and science it's a process, it's not a destination. So as time goes on, things change, right? So if you're a speaker, whether you're a politician or a CEO or the head of a family, right? You're you're, you're a mother, you're a father, right? Uh, or you're both. Um, and yesterday you told me this based on this data, but then today you're telling me this based on data and the data seems to have change because there's new evidence and therefore in the presence of new evidence scientists do have the duty right of changing the message people seem to be allergic with that right and it's people seem to have an issue and call people you know flip-floppers and then question the data which of course the data should always be questioned we should question what we hear we should question the sources but if you do the questioning you do the digging the proper digging, and the data supports the state of the society, the world, the country, the state, the community today, and that is different than what it used to be, we should be able to, to digest that, but we seem to be very allergic to that. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I agree
1: 100%. One of the most courageous, uh, courageous excuse me, things that a politician could do is to say, I'm sorry I was wrong, and go from there and explain why it is. Unfortunately, if you use the speaker-audience dynamics, sometimes the audience doesn't give the speaker the benefit of the doubt. They harangue them. They castigate them. They say you're a flip-flopper, as you said, and they hold it against them. They shouldn't. Give the speaker an opportunity to say, this is what I believed at this point with these set of facts. Now that I've come through experience to learn that there's been some type of development scientifically, there's been some type of development politically, we learned more about a certain topic, and now I believe this, that's a very credible person. Now, we're following the Aristotelian triangle if we do that. As an audience member, if you hold someone to a certain position when they're 45, that they had a different opinion at 25, I think that's unfair. I think we have to give fairness to the speaker, and I think we have to treat each other with the respect to at least be heard. Let them explain why they've changed their opinion and give them the opportunity to say, this is why I believe I was wrong then, This is why I believe I'm right now. You know and I know science is inexact. I think politics is inexact too. And it's, it's a moment where it gives you a slow thought to turn around and say, you know what? Upon reflection, upon my experience being in the Senate, being a congressman, being a congresswoman for all these years, I've seen this. I've seen the development of this political issue. And now I could say... This is what I believe it's the case. And this is my reason for it. I celebrate a person who could do that, whether
0: he or she's a Democrat or a Republican. That is fantastic. So let, let's let's put the third leg on this stool and talk about pathos. Well, what is pathos and how does it relate to the other two?
1: So pathos, some may say pathos. Uh, it's the Greek word for experience and Basically, what is pathos or pathos doing? It's appealing to the audience's values and beliefs, and you're using an emotional trigger to do that. This is, in a way, to say, this is who I am. If we go through the whole triangle again, this is who I am. This is my ethos. This is the support for what I'm trying to tell you, the logos. Now it's the good stuff. Now it's the advertisement. Now it's, if we call it the showboating But it's a positive thing, though, too. The showboat gets a negative connotation. But there is a lot of selling. You notice you have to – corporations have to sell products. Politicians have to sell themselves to be elected. Actors and actresses have to sell themselves into the role. So this is appealing to something. You have to appeal to the audience in a way where the audience is not going to look at you very dryly and say, okay, you're intelligent You know the stuff, but you're flat. You have to be colorful. This is the color that's added to the Aristotelian argument. It's persuading by punching emotionally. And that's what we're looking for in arguments, too. You have to persuade. And what I do as a trial attorney, there, there is laying out the case. There is giving justification for your knowledge of the case and the medicine and the person you're representing But this is the reason why, from my perspective and and being a defense attorney, this is the reason why you should find they're not liable. Plaintiff's attorneys would have the opposite. This is my punch. This is my chance to show you that this person should be uh, awarded a verdict because of this, because of something that's pulling them emotionally. You don't want it to be the sole reason because you lose credibility. Let's go back. If you're relying on only one of these to establish yourself, you're going to lose the argument because the audience might say you're pandering if it's all emotion. So you have to, again, it's all, it's all a balance, but the audience is expecting that emotional punch. It's expecting that trigger that, that uh, fly fishing
0: line to actually reel them in a little bit. Well, we certainly live in interesting times because, i will have to i will have to do some digging to find contemporary uh uh public figures if you will that in a balanced way apply these three elements of aristotle's modes or means of persuasion it seems like you know if you're in if you're in the political arena uh it is it is very predominantly pathos meaning I want to trigger an emotion out of you to get a vote, right? If, if you're in the corporate environment, it seems like it's very heavily weighted into the logos. Here's what the data shows. Here's what the stock market is doing. Here's what you know the, the, the quarterly reports are saying, right? And maybe in all other aspects of life, maybe in the family, it's about the ethos. I am your father. I am your mother. Therefore you know you must listen so it seems like we we have some homework to do as people as individuals as family members as members of the community as members of a society and 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 such to create more balance because to expect a reaction out of an individual or out of an audience by using one even two out of these three almost seems irresponsible it almost seems like we're just not really doing our job, like we, it seems to me, based on what what you've said, that there's two things that have to happen. Number one, if I'm the one conveying some information, again, it can be just with the family at home, that I need to find a way to balance these three in my everyday life and my everyday communication. And on the other side of that coin, if I'm in the audience and I'm listening, I need to be able to dissect what I'm listening under these three different uh, sections and then make decisions that are uh, intelligent according to what I'm seeing. Would you? What would you say to that? Absolutely. I agree with it
1: 100%. Let's start out with the best of us in history. Let's go to Martin Luther King Jr., for example. You know, We can go to him for many examples. In this triangle, we could have gone to him for any part of the triangle, but let's stick with the part which actually he explains something to us and gives us that emotional punch, that pathos part. Uh, And this is for the I Have a Dream speech from August of 1963, I believe. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. How much better do you get from that though? This is already an individual who's shown us through the other argumentation process, how he got where he was, we're giving him credibility because he's explained who he was where we've reached the stage where he's given a foundation for what his speech is. Now it's the I have a dream. Now it's the dream part. Now it's the emotional punch. Let's also look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she's speaking before the Supreme Court, I believe it was 1973. And part of her argument is, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. How powerful is that? That's the powerful punch that she is now giving these Supreme Court justices after giving them a brief that is going to lay out what her experience is, what the experience of the law is, how it's worked its way to this part in 1973. She's provided the other parts of the Aristotelian argument. She'll continue to do so in her argument. But then you have that part of the argument which speaks to it. It doesn't pander. It gives a word picture is what you want to do. Everyday life, parents are now having the discussion with their children about colleges. They could use the Aristotelian argument uh, or model, I should say. They could talk about, this is what I did when I was going to college. I have experience to tell you what the college situation is like. This is what colleges are offering you here. You're going to give the stats, statistics. This is how much money they may give you. This is how uh, they may uh, treat you on campus. These are the majors that they have. And what's the emotional punch? It's showing them that you're the emotional support for them there, that uh, you might be helping to finance the education if you're lucky enough to do so. But you're providing the support because you know it's a big stressor in their life. So even in speaking with your children about something like that, if you follow this model, you could balance it out and come across as someone that's very welcoming to your child. And in the process, um, you know, teach your child that – this is what college could be like at this point. It's a balancing of all these figures here. It's a balancing of stressors, but just know that I'm here for you and um, we love you and trust you.
0: And, and hopefully what happens to that, if we, if we take that to the home, which I think to the audience, you'll see that we do that a lot. We take things right back to the home. Is if we start talking to our children this way, They'll get used to that. And when they are older on their own and they're exposed to other types of conversations, they'll expect this. Uh, They'll expect this triage. They'll expect uh, the speakers and 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 the bosses and the CEOs and the politicians to talk about, you know, ethos and logos and pathos for, for all these three to be somewhat intertwined in the message. And when it's not, then they'll be able to have an intellectual, uh, dissection, uh, slicing and dicing of that message. And that's, I truly, truly believe that that would, that could only help, uh, the community we have today. Uh, in, in addition to that, what I like about what you've shared with us today, John is, is that once again, once again, it puts the onus on us, you know, the, the, this, this series is about communicating better is how can we have better conversations? how can we think a little bit more classically right how can we have uh, better discussions better arguments and the only way to do that is is we we ourselves have to do better uh we have we want to have a better conversation then like we said last time you know we have to listen that 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 slow thinking that you mentioned last week right now we're saying hey look for these three elements in a conversation and if they're not there insert them uh ask about them, um, contribute in that way to the conversation, and see where that goes. Uh, I would argue that it could go in a very good way. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Absolutely. You know, we, we just talked about colleges and we talked about the family. One concern I have, Raphael, and I think we both shared it, is what's going on in college campuses now with speakers coming and uh, speaking about something you may disagree with, being of a different political party, being of a different mindset. And I'm a little concerned about students sometimes having the power to shout someone off to prevent them from speaking and the the, the student body being in charge as opposed to the administration being able to say, you're in college now. Uh, We understand, we've talked about That safe spaces are not necessarily a bad thing. I think they're a good thing and they're an advancement from where we were, but you can't just rely on a safe space. College is not meant to be safe all of the time. I think what do we mean by that? Metaphorically, you have to be exposed to different ideas and you have to actually learn in the process from doing that. And if you're shouting out speakers that don't believe, what you believe politically, you're missing the opportunity to hang out with and learn something from someone you disagree with. One of the things I keep reminding my son, who's 16 now, is do me a favor. As you get older, hang out with people you disagree with. Learn from them. Question them. Because even though you may think you disagree with everything they say, everything they believe, that's likely not true. There are going to be nuggets there that you agree with
0: And I'm hoping,
1: and I think you and I have talked about this, Raphael, too. I'm hoping that our politicians start behaving in that way, too. You're there to legislate. You're there to make bills. You're there to sacrifice and to give and to take at the same time, not to just prevent bills from being made. And that's just my one concern. But I think where the pendulum will swing the other way, and we'll finally start realizing again that we're here to work together to give everyone a chance, to give everyone a forum. And to give everyone the opportunity to tell us something that we didn't know about ourselves or about a topic
0: no I fully agree I, I have I have a similar concern um, in, in the world of opinions you know we, we we certainly live in the best of times you know i I don't know any other time in history that I would rather be uh, because we are we've learned a lot we're, we're correcting a lot of a lot of the things that we didn't do so well in the past, but whenever, whenever that happens, it's like a pendulum. so it always swings way, just physics. It just swings way to the opposite side. Right. And I think one of one of the things that concern me today is this idea that, you know, everybody has an opinion, which everybody does, and everybody's entitled to their opinion, which everybody is entitled to their opinion. There's no argument there. There's no discussion. There's, you, you will never hear me discuss that, but, but not all opinions are created equal, and not all opinions uh, depending on the context need to be respected you know and I think that we've gotten used to that and that's that's a dangerous that's a dangerous place to be and I want to be very clear it, it, it has to do with context. I think it was Sam Harris who gave an example of what would happen if he walked in into a into a conference about string theory right. And string theory, for 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 those you know who don't know, is 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 the new uh, the new horizon in, in in theory of everything. You know, we had Newton, then we had um, Einstein and, and Hawking, and now we're looking for a new a new theory beyond relativity, beyond quantum mechanics and quantum physics, something something that actually encompasses more. And he gives the example as what if he walks in at a conference of string theories, the best minds in the world in string theory. And then he stands up and says, you know what? This is all madness. I don't believe any of this. I don't care for it. Not a fan. I don't like it. Not true. What would happen? The answer is nothing would happen because everybody would turn to him and look at him and be like, Okay. but guess what? He has no ethos because he has never done any work on string theory. (laughs) Okay, so there's he's got no logos because he's just giving an opinion based on how he feels about a particular topic. So you see more and more opinions like that, that have no ethos that have no logos and they're a hundred percent pathos. And we expect them to be respected. And I think that we need to be careful with that. I'm not saying that they need to be dismissed. They, They should be evaluated. You have a, you have an audience, you can be heard. But you have to do your homework. If you're going to stand up and say something, then bring some ethos with you. Bring some, bring some logos with you. And then bring some pathos with you. And then let's have an interesting conversation where we can learn, we can all learn together, and we can move forward.
1: I absolutely agree with that. I, I think just to, you nailed it in the sense that everyone... Could have an opinion and everyone believes they do and we talked about the social media platforms where it almost only allows you to assert opinion but not the basis for the opinion uh, they've said everyone's entitled to their own opinions but not their own facts and i think it was john adams who said facts are stubborn things let's look at the adamses for example you know I, I think most of your audience knows that john adams was one of the founding fathers But let's remind everyone, he was one of the few as an attorney who stood up there and said, I'm going to defend you soldiers, you soldiers who are accused of firing into a crowd of Bostonians. And Paul Revere, you know, magnified that. He was relying solely on pathos or pathos when he set that up and he showed the fires firing at the... That's not not how it happened at all. So... Adams had to actually work against the false premise that was being created by the colonists. And we can look at it this way, saying they were treating the British soldiers unfairly under the circumstance. Adams says they deserve representation and I'm going to represent them. I don't care uh, if my life is at stake. I don't care if my house is going to be burned down. Those are the people we look through, people who have that courage, but also the ability to separate the emotional from the factual uh, from the ethos that's there. Uh, he was an established attorney at that time and he was able to convince the jury of that because I am one of you consider my argument because this is what it's found on. His son, John Quincy Adams didn't have much of a presidency. It's, it's unfortunate that he didn't, he was ahead of his time with many things, especially with national projects national canals that came about later during later presidencies but he didn't go away once he lost a second term he didn't go away he didn't cry he didn't put his head in the sand he decided to go to congress and he decided to actually continue with his uh, anti-slavery abolitionist ideals and he was very instrumental in the amistad matter too amazing, an amazing someone. And that's someone again, who's able to reconstruct themselves and to say, my values are spurring me, not my
0: pride. Well, John, excellent conversation. Thanks again. And thanks for correcting me. I know I did make a mistake last time when you brought John Adams and I brought back John Quincy Adams. (laughs) (laughs) Two different people, father and son, but uh, two people with uh, excellent examples of some of the things that we're talking about in this series. Uh, thank you for your time again. i um, looking forward to the next session, which will be in forms of argumentation. And I'm looking forward to it too. Uh,
1: every time I see you, Rafael, it's fantastic. Every time you and I get a chance to speak to each other, but also have the audience benefit from it in any way. I love doing it. Thanks for actually starting this up. And uh, again, I look forward to seeing this through with you.
0: Thank you, John. You have a good evening.
1: Thanks, Raphael. You too. Take care.